want to start off uh, by welcoming you all, and it's great to see some uh, some new faces. If this is your first time here, I want you to know that you're not the only time person who it's your first time here, uh, and we'd like to welcome you all with a very warm welcome and a big hand of applause. Welcome. Um, so we're actually getting close to the end of our series. Today is the second to last session of the series. We started off by um, talking about uh, what is faith, what does it mean to believe, um, and from there we talked about who is Jesus, why did he come for us, um, what's all this business of salvation, and who is the Holy Spirit. And from there we uh, went on a weekend away uh, last weekend, not this past one, the one right before, um, and um, uh, just a quick show of hands. How many people in the room here were on the weekend away? Awesome. So people who weren't um, on the weekend away, take a look around um, and feel free to ask those people um, how they felt about the, about, um, about the weekend away. Um, and so um, as we're uh, on the weekend away, we talked a little bit about what is the what what is the christian life really like and so we talked about uh, we finished on the last night of the series before the weekend away talking about the holy spirit and the whole weekend away was talking about this this uh, thing we like to call synergy of the the holy spirit and, and and humanity working together and how does how do they work together and what does that look like and the real uh, nuts and bolts of it and that brings us to today where we're talking about the holy spirit in the context of um of the church um and so that kind of like brings you up to speed if this was your first week or if you needed uh, a, a refresher um and at this point usually our mc would share a joke he's probably a lot better of a joke teller than i am but uh, so this little kid goes to, uh, comes home from school with some terrible grades um and next day he goes to school and he taps his uh, teacher on you know on her shoulder uh, and she looks down at him he says she says yes johnny he says to her uh, my parents were really not happy with those grades and um, i just wanted to let you know that uh, if those the grades don't go up somebody's getting a spanking <laughs> with that we'll uh, launch into um our our intro videos to introduce the night so we started off um we started off by talking um about uh about faith as a journey um and that we're on this journey of life and it so happens that you, the the path of your journey and uh my journey or the journeys of the people around you happen to cross at least tonight they do um, and we're all here, we're all in the same room, and we're, we're all um, asking some of the same questions. So today's question is, what on earth is the church? Isn't God good enough? Um, and so here we are on our journey. And I guess the biggest question about this journey is, are you traveling alone or are you traveling with others? This business of being alone um, or not is actually really, really um, a big deal here in Toronto. Um, I remember in 2014, I believe, there was an article in the National Post that stated that 90% of respondents on surveys in Toronto that live in, in downtown Toronto um, self-reported being lonely, 90%. Um, in the UK in 2013, 
and uh, yeah, people, a lot of people live alone. I'm going to uh, give just some suggestions about what people have thought about this. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but in 2013, um, the Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, called loneliness an epidemic and actually started a new ministry called the Ministry of Loneliness um, and a new minister in her cabinet of ministers to address this issue. And the goal was that by 2023, GPs would be able to refer people who self-report as lonely to a variety of different resources and activities to help them to integrate with other people and not necessarily feel as lonely. In 2012, uh, United Way came out with a report called Vertical Villages, um, where they were kind of making the analogy that in days of old, people lived in villages and people could see each other. Um, and um, I really experienced this when I took a sabbatical for three weeks. Every morning I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning because I was on sabbatical, so I slept early as well. And I would uh, grab, you know, my favorite reading material, make myself a latte and go sit on my front porch. And I got to know everybody, you know, all the, the retired people on my street that smoke, right? Because they'd be out there with a cigarette and the paper, and, you know, we'd all kind of greet each other, head bob and this and that. And one day, my neighbor who lives sort of right in front and just to the right of me wasn't there. And, uh, you know, I would spend hours out there and she would usually go in and come back out a little later and go in. So, you know, I realized this lady didn't sleep in. So a little later on in the day, I went and knocked on her front door. I didn't have her number. Of course, you know, nobody knows who their neighbors are, let alone have their number. Gosh, I'm not a stalker or anything, right? And uh, so I knock on her front door and there was no answer. Uh, and so the following day, I figured, you know what? You know, maybe I'll knock on her front door again. Maybe, I don't know, maybe she needs something. Well, lo and behold, she'd had surgery, right? Um, and, uh, and I was able to do a few like little things for her, you know, to take out her garbage and little things that were too difficult for her to do as she was convalescing from her surgery, which was like really great. But previously to living in this home, I used to live in an apartment building, um, downtown at Bay and Girard. And so when you live on top of each other, you don't really see your neighbors because they live on top of you. Right. And in a, in, in, in a 30 story building with 25 or 30 units, you've got about 10,000 people that potentially could be living there. That is a very large village by old world standards. In olden days, people lived and they could see each other and they could see each other's behavioral patterns. But now we all live on top of each other. Uh, now magazine had an article in February of this year, 2019. Um, where they were talking about how people describe condo living in downtown Toronto like living in boxes in the sky, right? And we live like a, we are living in the one little box of the in the sky, um, and um, and that's our that's our interaction with others. Now that may or may not be how you feel, but it's certainly how a lot of people feel in this metropolitan setting. And so, well, what? What is, the church, what is the church and what does the church have anything to do with this? The word church is first mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, actually, Jesus is the first person to ever use that word um, in reference to what we would call a church nowadays. The word is in, in, in ancient Greek was ekklesia, um, and it actually existed in Greek and in Latin. 
uh, prior to Christianity. And what it all it meant was people who were gathered for a purpose. So it wasn't just a random gathering of people. It was people who were all gathered for the same purpose. And actually, under Roman law, it was considered a precursor to a mob and a riot. And Pax Romana was the peace of the Roman Empire, which was really like the holy, like the holiest of the holy things in of in, in the Roman world was that Rome had managed to conquer the world and achieve peace in all the world by three things: uniting, uniting the government under one emperor, uniting the religion under one emperor, in that people were welcome to wor worship whatever they wanted, but they had to refer to the emperor um, uh, as God, and by removing all forms of insurrection or violence and all of that. And so you know, a, a, a gathering of people gathered for a purpose was very ominous of their, maybe they're gathered because they're going to make some trouble. Um, and so that's what the word ecclesia meant in Jesus' time. And he refers to his followers who are all following him. So there are a bunch of people who are gathered to follow him as an ecclesia, as a gathering of people. And so that's kind of what we're going to refer to it as. Um, for this evening. Uh, and you can probably use that as your definition from here forward if you so wish. So anyhow, what's, what are other images other than this riotous mob of people, people gathering to riot um, that the, uh, or, or the evil penguins from Madagascar that, uh, that could be um, uh, like another image of the Ecclesia? Well, we've used icons a lot um, in these sessions. This is another uh, orthodox icon of Noah and Noah's Ark. Noah was this guy who lived probably about four and a half thousand years or so before Christ, before Jesus. And um, uh, in his time, um, in Genesis 6, it's described, the world is described as that every intent of the heart of man was evil all the time, except Noah and his family. So Noah is this head of this family. He's got three sons, his wife and his three daughters-in-law. And he builds this massive boat um, in this very arid, dry land. And, and he spends about 100 years building it. And everybody makes fun of him. And he tells him, look, a flood is coming. Rain is coming. You know, when it comes, you've got to join me in the boat. Everybody makes fun of him, of course. Um, and then he gathers, you know, two of all the animals and such and all of this. And they all gather in the boat, right? And so you've got a gathering of people in a boat who are gathered for a purpose. And this, this kind of uh, uh, imagery is, the, the church actually takes it so seriously that you'll find that most churches have a pointed roof. Um, at least most Orthodox churches have a pointed roof and they are seen, the church is seen as the ark in which people gather to be saved from the flood of this world. Um, and so the, the, that, that arched roof is almost like the bottom of, um, of a boat. Another uh, story in, in sort of Russian folklore, this old Russian story is about this, uh, uh, this Russian priest who didn't, who, who didn't see one of his congregants for a few weeks. First week, second week, third week, he said, you know, maybe I should pay him a visit. So he goes, he knocks on the man's door and the man opens the door and, and he, he, he walks in in complete silence, sits down by the hearth, by the fireplace, takes the tongs and takes an, you know, a burning red ember, a coal which is 
totally on fire and he takes it out of the fire pit and puts it on the hearth, the stonework in front of the fireplace. And they just sit there and they stare at it in silence. And little by little, the ember, which was glowing red hot red, starts to dim and dim and dim and dim. And then he takes it and he puts it back in the fire. And he leaves it there for a little bit in complete silence and then pulls it out. The same thing again. And he does this a few times. And then the man who was hosting him looks up at him and he says, I understand. And the priest, without saying a word, smiles and gives him a big hug and walks out. And the message was, the longer you stay away from the rest of the coals that are, that are burning and are aflame, the colder you become and the light in you begins to dim and dim and dim. Don't stay away for too long. So what is, what is the church? Well, I'll share with you a few things that scriptures say. Scriptures refer to the, to the church as a building, a holy building of stonework where the stones are not rocks, but the stones are people all fitted and knitted together for a greater purpose. Uh, St. Peter refers to it as a, as a spiritual house. The church is referred to as a temple or as a household in Galatians. Uh, again, think of this as the, not the, the building with an address, 557 Bathurst Street, but think of it as this gathering of people gathered for a purpose, right? In 1 Corinthians, a field which is fruitful. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, St. Paul refers to it as the body of Christ. And this is something maybe we'll just pause for a second here. He, you know, Paul makes this big emphasis that the church is all of these members, all of these different parts of a body, and they're, they're all connected to a head. And it's the head, it's their connection to the head is what they have in common and what helps them to work all in synchrony so that they can, they can work in some synchronized fashion for the greater good of the whole, not the greater good of one particular part or, or something, but for the greater good of the, uh, of the entire whole. The, um, the church is also referred to in scripture as the bride of Christ. Um, and when, it, when the church is referred to in, as the bride of Christ, in both in Ephesians and in Revelation, and also in Isaiah, um, refers to, to God as the husband um, and, the, and, and um, those who follow him uh, as, uh, as his bride. Um, uh, the language that's used is very personal um, and is, is very beautiful. And um, a lot of uh, young women, maybe you, maybe not, think of their, their wedding day as almost, you know, as almost like the peak of like one's beauty or, 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 or one's joy. Um, and um, and that's, really the, that's really the imagery that's being used here is that uh, the relationship between God and the church makes the, the beauty of the church shine and resound clearer than it ever may have before. Well, that's a little bit about of what, how scripture des, des, describes the church. Well, how do other people describe the church? We spoke previously about how when, uh, whenever uh, people had deep theological questions in the first few uh, centuries, uh, of Christianity after persecution had ended um, and the empire had become Christian, um, they, would, they would gather together in these things called councils to answer these questions. And there's one phrase 
um, in sort of the seminal work of the first council, the Council of Nicaea, uh, that describes the church. And they describe the church as the one holy Catholic and apostolic. The word Catholic here is to be distinguished from Roman Catholic in that a Roman Catholic is, is a specific denomination, whereas the word Catholic here means, it, it, the, what the word Catholic really means is universal across time. So not universal just in this moment, um, but universal from, of, you know, throughout all ages. Um, that's what the, the Catholicity of the church, that's what that refers to. So we'll talk about a few of what these words mean. One of them is the word one. So why do they say, well, there's one church? Well, you know, driving through Toronto, there is many churches. Um, and then many of them are of different denominations and they all sound different. And if you went somewhere else, you might meet different people who, you know, were dressed differently, talked differently, ate differently, sang differently, and so on. So how can you just, how can you say it's one? Well, the answer to that is very simple. It's, it's, it's one body that has one head. That might have two eyes, it might have two ears, it might have two kidneys, and so on. Uh, you know, it might only have one nose, but it only has one head. And so though those who follow Jesus as their head are part of this one holy Catholic or this one church. Now, you know, holy Catholic and apostolic are other sort of other features that we'll, uh, that we'll discuss. And even St. Paul, when he's describing this, says, for there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism um, in Ephesians 4. But it all sprouts from there being one one Lord. There's only one that we call Lord and his name is Jesus. Um, another, another description of the church is as a hospital. Frequently, you know, you may or may not have heard the axiom or the idiom that the church is not so much a, a museum of saints as it is a hospital of sinners. A bunch of people who have recognized their need for for God and their need for Jesus. That's very much sort of what the church is. And so each person who goes to the hospital goes to the hospital with a need, with an illness, with something for which they're looking for a cure. So if you feel like, you know, like you have no need of nothing, then then you probably don't need to go to a hospital. Um, and what happens at the hospital is that which is distorted, like we've talked in the previous weeks, week three and four, you know, that which is, that which is not as it ought to be is made whole. That which is, um, is, is misaligned is realigned, you know, um, very much very orthopedic terms, you know, this, the word ortho, uh, it means right, like a, like an orthogonal triangle, is a triangle with a right angle, with a ninety degree angle. That which is that that which is askew is is straightened, you know, and is is aligned, made perfect. That's what that's what the church is really um, all about. Um, Tertullian, one of the uh, great writers of Christianity in the first few centuries describes the church as that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is something we made reference to before. This is an icon, uh, an Eastern Orthodox icon uh, of the martyrs of the Boxer Rebellion in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, in China, during the, 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 the Boxer Rebellion, all of these people uh, were martyred. And what's really, what's really fascinating and has fascinated historians for, for, for eons is that the more the church is persecuted, the more it seems to grow. In fact, modern historians have postulated that perhaps there have been more 
Christian martyrs in the 20th century than there have in any previous century before. So these people all gather, and when they gather, they all gather around some central figure. Um, and so like here you have this like fam picture of this family gathering, and there's, you know, grandpa sitting, sitting in the middle. And the model of the church is very similar, right? Where uh, in the Orthodox church, the whole church gathers around a, a spiritual leader, the priest or a bishop. Um, and it's almost like you have these concentric circles where you have Christ who has his direct followers, his 12 disciples, and then there's 70 apostles, and then there's 500 others that witnessed his resurrection. And you have the sort of these concentric circles. Now, this analogy of concentric circles kind of fits this part of the story, but it's not perfectly true because all the different people that are in this gathering are all equally close to the center if they so wish. Um, regardless of their standing or status or, 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 or where they belong. What unites them all, what unites them all is Jesus' teaching and what he says is the distinguishing feature of Christians. He says to his disciples, he says to them, people, by this they will know that you are my disciples, my followers. If, and the answer isn't, you have a big bumper sticker on the back of your car that says everybody else is going to hell. The answer is not that you wear like a big bling gold chain with a gold cross on it. He says, if you have love for one another, that is the distinguishing feature of Christians. And so that's what you get when you get a bunch of people that are united around one person and they're united around one figure and they're committed to loving each other. That's what you get. You get community. You get something that people have in common, which derives, derives their unity. I'll just finish and then we'll take any questions that there might be. Um, and so, and, and so that's, that's the ideal model of the church, as simple as that. And where is this model derived from? It's derived from the Holy Trinity, what we talked about in the first couple of weeks. And, and Jesus, in his, in his dying prayer, in his final prayer before God, before getting arrested and crucified, says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. He's saying, the love that I've shared with my Father, I've shared that exact same love with you. Now you all share that love. So what model am I to use when I'm trying to figure out how to love my brother or my sister, you know, in this gathering, it's, it's to look to the relationship between the persons of the Trinity and to look at the, to the relationship between the, the Lord Jesus Christ um, and myself. And so we all gather and we all gather and sit at one table. And who sits at the head of this table? Well, Jesus sits at the head of this table. And what do we do when we gather sort of when we gather for this, you know, and we sit at this table is we share a meal. And that's what we talked about. We talked about the liturgy during the weekend away, right? And as we share in this meal, as we share in one bread and one cup, like St. Paul says, we we share in a, a certain unity and we, we become one body. We don't believe this to be like, like an analogy or like the videos at the beginning were, were kind of funny and they were about teamwork and so on. Um, uh, and that could be applied to anything. But um, 
in this instance, we don't believe it to be an analogy. We believe it to be a divine reality. That means a reality which is only revealed to God, and he has revealed to us by saying it to us, but we don't really see it. Like, I look like I'm in a distinct body than you are. So how are we one body? Well, that's the divine, that's the divine reality, right? And then these people, after they receive after they receive the body and after they receive the blood. And then after that, at the very end of the service, um, the bishop in, in the olden days, the bishop would go and he would, he would bless each person and put his hand on their forehead. And as he was blessing them, he would say to each person, now go in peace. Um, and as our churches and congregations have grown and so on now, and in the, at least in the Coptic rite, the, the, the priest like throw, throws, throws sort of some water on people as a blessing. Um, but really what he's telling them, what he's really doing is he's dismissing them. He's discharging them um, to the world. And the thought is, is as you have come and you have participated in this, and as you have believed that Jesus has died for you and rose from the dead for you, now you go out and you go and be the one who dies for somebody else in loving them. And you go out now and be the salt of the earth and be the light of the world and go and you go now and do what has been done for you. So in a football game, wrapping up now, in a football game, you know, there's sort of 22 people sweating and, you know, running and killing themselves on the field and thousands in the stands watching. Um, and if you look at the division of effort, it's somewhat um, unequal, right? Uh, if you had even just a fraction of the people in the stands not watching but participating, it would be completely different. And that's what the church is supposed to be like. So we'll just finish with this, uh, this poem. Um, where everyone comes to life, where no one stands alone, where every part is important and respected, where togetherness is the norm. And we'll end with a closing video.